Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 282. Interview with Brad Torgerson, author of The Chaplain's War from Bain Books, and a review of Jonathan Carroll's new novel, Bathing the Lion. And now, podstructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy literature. This is Sean Farrell. I am alone today, just going to give you a quick introduction, and then we're going to jump right into this interview with Brad Torgerson. In the interview, Brad and I discuss military science fiction, and we go pretty deep into the themes of his new novel and his first novel, The Chaplain's War. We also talk about his experience with Writers of the Future which is a very cool story, so I encourage you to listen through the interview for that that piece. After the interview, we have a book review uh, done by our own John Dodds of Jonathan Carroll's new novel, and it's a great little piece. I think you'll enjoy it. And besides, John has an accent, which makes it even better, because Americans don't have accents, don't you know? That's a joke. I just want to make sure everyone gets that. <laughs> All right. Uh, quick announcement. The winners of our giveaway that we did last month. I am a couple weeks late announcing the winners. But the winners of the World War Kaiju graphic novels are Josh Hayes and Tim Marquez. And I'm probably saying Tim's last name incorrectly. But Josh and Tim, you have won the books. So please do uh, email your addresses to adventures in sci-fi publishing at gmail.com and I will get those books to you in the mail, okay? Also, include, if you could, your Facebook URL so I can confirm that you are the actual winner and so I don't accidentally send the book off to someone else who did not win it. If you haven't been to our website for a while, we ask you to please come check it out. Lots of new book reviews and articles are going up every month as well as our Books Received page, where you can get an idea of what some of the new books are that are coming out if you're looking for something to read. Uh, Robert does his best to get his New Books of the Week article up every Tuesday, and uh, we usually do get that posted on Tuesdays. goes out through Facebook and Twitter and on our website, and that gives you a list of the new science fiction, fantasy, and sometimes horror titles that are being published that month, as well as some independent authors uh, that are putting their stuff out that uh, that week, excuse me, not that month, but that week. So you can always kind of stay on top of what's new through that weekly column. This episode is brought to you by Mission Flight to Mars by V.A. Jeffrey, and very grateful to Victoria for sponsoring the podcast. So please do check her book out. There's a free sample that we've linked to if you want to get an idea for what the world of Mission Flight to Mars is all about. Um, and you can learn more just by coming to our website, adventuresinsci-fipublishing.com, and clicking on the image for the book. There's also the image in the show notes page. So we're very grateful for the sponsors that help keep the things running around here. The new website that we put out uh, two months ago did cost a few bucks, so we're still recovering the cost of doing that. Um, and you can help us out just by checking out their work. If it looks good to you, maybe buy a copy of their book. And if you do, let them know, let VA Jeffrey know that we sent you. All right, let's go ahead and jump into our interview today and then the book review to follow. And we'll see you all very soon. 
Brad Torgerson began his writing career the way so many writers used to, by selling his short fiction, building a readership, and then selling his novel, The Chaplain's War, now out from Bain Books. Brad is a winner of the Writers of the Future, a two-time winner of the Analog Reader's Choice Award, a Campbell Award nominee, and a three-time Hugo nominee. He also has two short story collections from Kevin J. Anderson's Wordfire Press, Lights in the Deep, and Racers of the Night. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. I enjoyed The Chaplain's War, and uh, let's go ahead and just jump right into this thing. Um, the story takes place in a universe, if I understand correctly, that you originally began exploring through short fiction. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about the evolution of the novel over the years and how you built up from short fiction to novel length? Well, basically, um, the the universe got its start with a story called The Chaplain's Assistant, which was published in the September 2011 issue of Analog Magazine. Um, and that story had actually uh, uh, begun life uh, much earlier in the year as a, as a workshop assignment. Um, shortly after I won Rise of the Future, I went out to Oregon and uh, did one of uh, Christine Catherine Rush and Dean Wesley Smith's short story workshops. Hmm. And uh, the idea of the workshop was to kind of come up with a, a hypothetical themed anthology that theoretically we were going to be writing stories for. And uh, if I remember correctly, the, the name of the proposed anthology was A Planet Too Far. And it was supposed to be about, you know, uh, interstellar colonies, uh, you know, on the edge, uh, life on the rough frontier, uh, humanity biting off more than it can chew. And, you know, that was kind of the idea. So... At the same time we had this assignment, um, I was uh, I was just trying to mull it over and, and seeing, you know, well, how could I approach this in a in a you know a way that I could kind of feel was a little bit unique and and different because I, I didn't want to just do a a frontier western or something like that. I, I wanted to kind of crawl around in, inside a a different perspective a little bit. Um, being in the military, I'd always been fascinated with military history, and in particular, one thing that came out of the Vietnam War, which uh, they did some studies on all of the returning POWs, and they found that uh, people that had managed their time in captivity better uh, tended to have some kind of spiritual belief or religious belief. Um, it was statistically proven in the studies, and so I'd always found that uh, rather fascinating. And so I thought, well, what if I extrapolated that into a, a science fictional setting? You know, military science fiction is is replete with you know alien war stories and things like that and so I thought well what if you have a uh, you know a bunch of humans that are basically uh, prisoners of war behind enemy lines and you know how do I tell a story that's going to be uh tying back to that that statistical anomaly or at least at the time the the study was done it was considered a bit of an anomaly where uh you know the POWs that had a a religious belief of some kind had done better and uh, had survived in captivity, whereas people who didn't uh, tended not to uh, to a greater extent. And so, then my brain started spinning on, well, how do I set this up? And and you know, what are the what do the aliens look like? And and it really got uh, uh, pretty deep, pretty fast in terms of uh, playing with ideas. Because I, first of all, I I did what I tend to do with a lot of my stories. I I started with the uh, the protagonist being just a, an everyday guy, uh, you know, somebody who's not terribly uh, unique or special or, uh, you know, he wasn't a, uh, uh, an amazing person in a, his own right. He was just a regular guy, kind of plunged into this terrible circumstance. 
and uh, everything kind of folded out from there. Uh, the story was published and, and did well in the reader poll. Uh, and then uh, I, I, I got some more ideas and kept going with it further with an, a novella that was uh, published in Analog a couple years later. And that one did win the reader poll for its category. That was The Chaplain's Legacy. Um, but by the time it had won the reader's poll for its category, it had already taken both The Chaplain's Assistant and The Chaplain's Legacy and rolled those into the book. So mm. I had 6,000 words of a short story and 24,000 words of a novella and I had put those together and, and really blown it up into a full-blown 120,000-word book that uh, Bain had on the, had on their radar. So, um, but yeah, it, it did. It got all started with the short stories, and it had all went back to that workshop because we we had to write a story about uh, humans clinging by their fingernails, hanging on, and uh, th- that's that's really where it came from. Very cool. I just finished rereading Victor Frankl's *Man's Search for Meaning*. And I don't know if you're if you've read that book, but um, he survived uh, concentration camps, and his observations about what allowed some to survive while most did not were very similar to what you mentioned um, in the studies of the the POWs. So that's very interesting stuff. Um, and, and I enjoyed the fact that this was a book of ideas rather than just a litany of fight scenes. As someone who's in the service, how does your your uh, your service in the military impact how you want to present military science fiction. I, I would say you know being a reservist is is part of it. Uh, I, I'm you know definitely not a, a hard hitting, hard charging, uh, front line guy. I, I knew I never when I joined up 12 years ago. I knew that was an impossibility for me anyway, just because I, I was 28. I wasn't 18 anymore. Uh, I, I had you know no illusions about being any kind of Rambo, but. Uh, after September 11th, 2001, I, uh, uh, you know, I just, I, I felt like, uh, you know, okay, I'm a computer geek. I'm living in Seattle. Yeah, sure. What can I contribute? There's got to be something I can do. Uh, and so, uh, after talking about it with my wife, I, I went ahead and joined up, uh, in the army reserve and really had no, no, uh, no intention of doing anything other than just, you know, like I said, you know, finding a way to contribute. Um, as time passed, and especially after I started publishing and things, and I'd moved up in my military career, I I went from being a private to being a sergeant. And then uh, when my mentor, a uh, uh, person by the name of Chief One Officer 3, uh, Michelle Neeson, when she retired, she kind of fingered me and said, okay, Sergeant Torgerson, you're going to go uh, you know, go to Warrant Officer School. And I said, right. So I trotted off to Warrant Officer School and and uh, got my bar as a chief Um and uh, throughout that whole thing, I, you know, the military is a big place, and there's many, 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 many different kinds of people in it, and everybody contributes more or less to the, to the success or the failure of the military. And this is across the, you know, different branches and and different jobs. And so when I sit down to write a, a military science fiction story, um, very often I'm I'm looking at the contributions of the people who don't always get the credit. Hmm. Um, I, I had uh, the the sergeant major of the chaplain's corps back at the Pentagon actually uh, talk to me on the phone a couple weeks ago about that because he'd gotten wind of the book and he called me up and he's like, so you know why did you write about chaplains and chaplains assistants because we never, you know we we, we you know people don't talk about us uh, too much it's always you know frontline infantry you know fighter pilots uh, you know the, the you know the the what I would call the sexy. Uh, uh, the MOSs. 
so why did you guys write, you know, why did you write about us? And so I kind of talked to him a little bit like I'm talking to you guys, and uh, I, I told him the same thing. It's just, you know, for me in particular, to, to focus on a chaplain's assistant uh, uh, just, just made sense because, again, it would allow me to tell the story from the standpoint of a of a guy who, you know, just wanted to, you know, wanted to participate in this conflict that was, you know, threatening to wipe out the earth, and uh, he had no real purpose beyond that. Um, but through the course of events, you know, he he discovers a purpose that's, uh, and a, and a way to affect the conflict that's completely out of left field. Mm-hmm. But at least in the context of the story, I thought it made sense, and at least the analog readers seemed to like it. They 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 liked it a lot, and I've gotten a lot of good feedback on the book too. Um, so I, you know, again, it's focusing on the fact that the military is a big place and there's lots of different kinds of people who are in it. And, uh, you know, you never know who is going to be the, uh, the person or the, or who are going to be the people who are going to make the ultimate difference. And, and with this kind of story, again, it was a story of ideas. It wasn't necessarily, like you said, uh, just a, a sequence of different battles. Uh, you know, for this story, it was definitely more about the underpinning of, you know, why are we fighting in the first place? And, and is there going to be any kind of peace that can be dragged out of the ashes of this terrible conflict that both sides can can agree with and how that might be accomplished and, and so on and so forth? For those of us listening who are not very familiar with the military, what are your primary duties as a warrant officer? Well, I'm a paper pusher myself. Um, I uh, started out in uh, what was called the Garrison Support Unit back in Washington State. Um, and when I came in again, I, I just kind of, you know, went through the motions at what's called MEPS, uh, the processing station there in Seattle. And they said, well, what job do you want? And, and I just said, well, I'm a computer geek by, you know, civilian trade, you know, what's, what's kind of close in that ballpark. And I actually ended up get, getting fit into for what in the army is called a 75 hotel, which is actually what they <laughs> human resources or admin. And I said, okay, that, I guess that works. And so, uh, you know, my whole career track has just been, you know, uh, what in the Army is called S1, which is just admin stuff, paperwork, computer stuff. Um, Same thing when I went uh, to warrant officer school. I I transitioned out of what was uh, called 42 Alpha into 420 Alpha, um, which is just kind of like admin on steroids a little bit. (laughs) It's been been cool being a chief, though, because uh, I've actually gotten to do a lot of things way beyond just admin um, uh, I've gotten to, uh, you know, play a bigger role, I think, but still kind of stay in my little specialty, so to speak. Um, chiefs tend to get, uh, respect up and down the chain. That was the other thing I really liked about watching some of my mentors who were chiefs, you know, how they did their business. Cause it was obvious to me that they really got a lot of respect from, uh, the senior officers. And they also got a lot of respect from the senior NCOs and, uh, having been an NCO myself, you know, it was, it was nice to transition into a, 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 a new world where I could kind of keep one foot in the officer uh, realm and one foot in the enlisted realm and kind of get to, to help people out on both sides. Very cool, very cool. Yeah, I want to ask you about uh, your main character, uh, Chaplain Barlow, who is a bit of a reluctant hero, um, but certainly the hero of the story, no doubt about it. And the chaplain is in a war, but his war of the title is not the war, so to speak. Um, <laughs> so, you know, he, he's constantly a part of the action, but sort of removed as well from being becoming a chaplain in the training. So he wasn't a part of the platoons and the training exercises to uh, being a, a POW, which you learn immediately in the beginning of the novel that he's a POW and sort of from his ship, you know, that... 
uh, being shot down, which leads to him being a POW. So they're in the action, but now removed from it, and he's isolated as a prisoner of war. And then him getting pulled in and being a, the one human among the, the mantis. Um, so he's in the action, but he's also isolated, and it allows some very interesting introspection on his part. So this is kind of a big meta question, I know. But what is the role of isolation in the development of Barlow's character? And what role do you think isolation plays in our own spiritual and intellectual development and exploration? Oh, boy, that that is a big meta question. Um, I think, gosh, if I can approach this without getting too uh, too far off into the weeds, I, I think the isolation in the story is key because what I needed was somebody who could talk to the enemy but do it on kind of a neutral ground and, and do it in a way that would uh, would address the the differences between the two species in the book without necessarily, again, demonizing one side or the other or making it clearly obvious that, you know, uh, the, 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 the uh, one side or the other was evil or something, you know, because I've got a great respect. Um, two guys that are, are kind of my... Uh, one is a writing mentor, and the other one who's who's passed away a few years ago, I think of as a as a kind of a mentor uh, uh, by proxy, and that's uh, uh, the writers Chris Bunch and Alan Cole. Uh, Chris Bunch had been a, a, a ranger in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Alan Cole is his best friend and writing buddy, and they they go way back. They did boatloads of scripts for uh, Hollywood, especially TV during the the 80s. You know, Glenn A. Larson just recently died, and and those guys were scripting at the same time Glenn's shows were all big, you know, A-Team and all these shows. But um, in, in their books, they tended to uh, to really kind of run it up the middle. Uh, they've got a, a what I consider to be a, a fantastic uh, military science fiction series called Sten. Um, and they've also written, a, or they wrote a, a Pulitzer-nominated Vietnam War novel called A Reckoning for Kings. And especially in A Reckoning for Kings, you know, they told the war from both sides. Yeah, it was... It, it was obvious that they were kind of a little bit rooting for the American side, if only because the the American characters are who, uh, as a as a as an English American, you know, English speaking reading American reader, you know, you kind of latch onto that a little bit. Right. But the other side, the 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 North Vietnamese uh, side, was entirely uh, uh, was entirely uh, 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 accessible. And you could totally get their point of view, and you could totally understand their frustrations, and it was, it was amazing to see that done. And so when I I sat down to do this project, uh, I didn't really intend uh, again in the beginning to write a book, but I ended up writing a book. And throughout the book and in in the stories, I I tried to again play it straight and and not just say you know humans good, aliens bad. I wanted to construct it so that it was kind of obvious why the war was happening. And then bring it down to get to that isolated place where you could have two important pivotal characters who would end up altering the course of things just by having a conversation. Which to me, you know, I thought, you know, again, thinking about the way wars are fought and ended, you know, sooner or later there has to be a winner and there has to be a loser. And uh, uh, it, I remember in the old uh, Carl Sagan's Cosmos series. Uh, one of those uh, episodes that he did, he talked about how if if alien races ever did meet us, um, or if, if if we ever went out in the universe and, and discovered aliens, um, it, it was it was probable that one or the other would be much much more advanced. 
like so advanced that if there actually were wars between the, the species that one side would be so advanced it would be no contest. And so I kind of used that as a default assumption for this series. I said, okay, humanity is out there, but we're really young in the universe, and then we run into this much older, much more advanced species that's pretty much going to wipe us out uh, because they've done it before. They just, by default, that's, that's, their, that's their thing. They, they consider other intelligent species to almost be vermin uh, of no consequence. And so I thought, well, if that's, if that's the end game, you know, what could possibly change that? Because there's going to be no way for us to defeat them on numbers. We're too, we're too few. There's not enough of us. There's going to be no way for us to defeat them on technology. Uh, so what's left? What could possibly, you know, be the fulcrum that would switch things? Uh, so that, that's really what it came down to. Speaking about that, I loved how the professor very quickly in the book shows Barlow that there's more to the Mantis than what they previously thought and starts to break and, and address some of those issues you just mentioned. And I really I saw the human reaction, the Mantis reaction to each other as a metaphor, not just how we view, we view each other in war, but how we view and treat each other in our own society with people who have different religious or political views than our own. We see this a lot. I think we dehumanize and then attack and we justify the destruction, uh, even our own collateral damage because we've made the other person, you know, the other, I'm making finger quotes here, but no one can see that. Um, and, and I know from reading your website that, that you definitely believe fiction's purpose is primarily to entertain, but how aware were you of that metaphor, if, if unless I'm just making it up, as you were writing The Chaplain's War? I, I, think, um, I think that was floating around in the, in the back of my head, definitely. Uh, you know, oftentimes when I sit down to write something, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of focused on the fun aspect of it, but almost invariably there's some kind of uh, deeper thing that tends to leak around the edges by the time I get the the project finished. Um, and yeah, I think uh, especially now in the age of the internet, when we are all running around inside each other's heads, really more than we ever have before. You know, uh, Twitter and Facebook and and blogs and and uh, Instagram. You know. Uh, you know, we're, unless you're living off off the net, so to speak. You know, my wife actually hates social media. She's, I always, you know, we always laugh because she always accuses me of being way too plugged into social media, and she's not <laughs> plugged in at all. She thinks it's ridiculous and stupid and asinine. But part of the reason she thinks that is because, again, she 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 looks at this 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 melee of ideas and arguments and it's you know political it's social it's it's religious it's and, and she just thinks the whole thing is preposterous because it's 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 everybody talking past everybody else and like you said there's a lot of otherizing going on and people automatically assuming well you know my side is the perfect side and if you don't agree with it well then you're terrible and horrible and evil and yeah i i definitely think um you know even in the science fiction field itself i hate to say it you know there's a lot of this that's that's happened, uh, you know, there's a lot of division, ideological division that goes on, and and people just cannot seem to figure out a way to talk to each other like you would if you sat down over a lunch or a meal or something and, and talked to somebody across the table, uh, you know, because the Internet provides that, that, uh, that buffer that allows, I think, uh, you know, even the, the, the most well-intended person to maybe get a little more hyperbolic than they might otherwise be, get a little more accusatory than they might otherwise be. Um, and with Barlow and the professor, I, you know, I wanted to kind of really dive inside their heads and, and, uh, and say, okay, you've got two 
very, very, very different people with very, very different experiences and outlooks, again, having to have this dialogue and how are they going to do it and what's going to matter uh, to both of them right. uh, ultimately. And how, again, how is this going to affect the, uh, the, the, the outcome of the war, so to speak? Right, and there's a passage actually I have highlighted. If you'll humor me, I wanted to read to you a passage of your own book. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. I'll go right ahead. So for those following at home, you can find this on page uh, two, 271 and 272. And this is uh, one of the mantis or manti, I'm not sure what the plural, the singular would be, but I won't say who, uh, speaking with Barlow. And uh, this person says, um, when we were marooned on that nameless world upon which your human lifeboat landed, I was struck by the fact that while each of our peoples pretend to own space, this ownership is an illusion. The distance between stars are immense. It would take lifetimes to travel at sublight speed. Both of our races have primarily focused on those planets and resources concentrated nearest the stars themselves. But we know from study that there's a great deal between the stars too. Planets without stars, as well as gases, whole clouds of minute rock and dust particles, all swirling in an immense gravitational dance according to the specific masses of the aggregate whole. And then a little bit later... For perhaps the first time, I asked myself, what is this all for, the universe I meant, if not for the boundless expansion and dominance of the mantis people, then what? Sharing this universe with humans is not merely a question of territory, Padre. A long-term peace means sharing space with humans and our collective consciousness. As I was thinking about this book, I thought, man, that little, those few lines right there really encapsulate not just what they're seeking to do, to come to terms with each other intellectually and spiritually, but what our goals are here on this planet, interacting with people in our everyday lives. No, I, I'm glad you like that passage. Um, I think I was, uh, again, kind of unconsciously channeling something I remember uh, from a Star Trek movie, of all things. Um, uh, you know, the movies, you know, people are, have different opinions about which one is better or worse. And But uh, there was a line um, I remember from the sixth movie, where basically Kirk and the and the Klingon uh, Chancellor uh, are you know staring at each other at the end of this very contentious uh, uh, dinner they've had on the Enterprise and and the the Klingon leans in close to Kirk if my memory's correct this is how it played out but my memory seems to go like this he leans in close to Kirk and he says if there is to be a brave new world our generation is going to have the hardest time living in it mm-hmm. and I thought I thought wow that's you know that's that's actually that's that's that seems to be so apt because uh, you know, to me, that spoke of, you know, we might not like each other, we might not agree with each other, we might have completely different outlooks, but if this treaty is between the Federation and the Klingons is going to work, we have to make space not only for each other physically, but we have to make space in our hearts and our heads for each other. And I, I think that's, uh, I think that's definitely something that's uh, a huge challenge. Uh, probably it always has been, but maybe again because of the internet and the in- interconnectivity of social media and like I said we're running around in each other's heads all the time now and and people are discovering oh my goodness there's so many people out there that think so completely different from me it's so alien it's so disturbing it's so uncomfortable and yet at least you know here in America where theoretically we're supposed to be working together as a democracy you know representative democracy in theory we're supposed to figure out a way to 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 get over that to to make room in our minds and in our hearts for each other uh and that's you know 
maybe I'm being way too deep on that one, but that's that's kind of no. what I see as a as just an ever present uh, uh, problem, or maybe not a problem, but a challenge. Let's let's put it as a challenge, I guess. Yeah. No, I don't think you're going too deep with that. I mean, I, that's exactly what I picked up reading the book, obviously. Um, and they're great questions. That's what I love about science fiction, right? You can take these things and put them out there, and you're, you can kind of address challenges we have today in a different context. It makes it a little bit easier for people to discuss and to understand without offending anybody. So, um, well done. That was awesome. Um, when I think a little shift here, when I think of military science fiction, I immediately think of Ender's Game. That's probably my favorite military SF novel. Uh, what do you think are some? I know you mentioned a few earlier, but what do you think are the definitive novels in the military science fiction genre? And um, how are you trying to do something? And again, I think you discuss this a bit too different than what those novels have done. Boy. Um... Yeah, I, I really liked Ender's Game and Speaker for the Dead. I think Orson Scott Card is um, is, is flat out brilliant. Uh, I think the guy deserves every accolade he's ever gotten. Um, having met him, uh, I met him last year in L.A. You know, he's a gentleman and and uh, he loves to talk to new writers. And so I was kind of wrapped, you know, sitting there listening to him talk. And uh, you know, Ender's Game casts such a shadow. Um, it, it's, it's right up there in the top five. I know, uh, Joe Haldeman's forever war is usually up there. Um, of course, Heinlein's starship troopers. Now hmm. I'll, 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 I'll admit that I haven't read every single military SF, uh, classic that there is. I've read Ender's game, but I haven't read the forever war. Um, I haven't read starship troopers. Now I know that's heresy to the Heinlein fans. Sorry, Heinlein fans. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I've read other Heinlein, like I've read uh, War in, in 2100, and I've read uh, a great deal of Heinlein's uh, short fiction, but I didn't, I didn't read Starship Troopers. Um, I know, uh, you know, over at Bain, we have a, a couple of guys that, that have really nailed it uh, in terms of, like, having, having uh, huge fan bases with their military science fiction, you know, David Drake and David Weber. Um, you know, John Ringo and Tom Kratman, those are newer authors who also have, you know, really, really big fan bases, and they're... Those guys, are, of course, are military veterans. Uh, Drake is a veteran. Um, hmm. I, I think, uh, you know, again, the, the series that really got me are the two writers that probably have the biggest influence are, are Bunch and Cole. Uh, their series, the Sten series, came out in the 80s. Uh, in fact, I think the first novel was out in either 80 or 81. I can't remember when. Are, are the, you saying the, STEM series? S-T-E-M? S-T-E-N as in Nancy. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, th- that's that's the uh, eponymous name of the first book, and that's the name of the main character, and uh, it, it really tells a very sprawling, uh, very interesting uh, uh, story. Uh, and it's, it, again, it's basically military SF, but there's some much deeper ideas going on there about the role of government and about the role of liberty and about uh, you know economics and 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 how a, an actual interstellar empire might form and function and what are the pitfalls of that and um another uh, writer that i don't hear mentioned often enough and i, I don't think he's a veteran but I, I always liked his military sf and that was a uh, w michael gear um back in the early 90s he did a series called the forbidden borders which was a terrific space opera uh, trio uh, those three books were very enjoyable but they also Again, they focused on a lot of kind of cool, deep philosophy. Mm. Um, I thought the military stuff was very well done, and it, it was it was very uh, space opera ish, and that it was you know very larger than life characters, and it was kind of like Star Wars in that way, where you know 
you had a few heroic main people and the the balance of power is riding on everything they do and and so W Michael Gear I think uh, deserves a big mention um but yeah I, I again I I confess I haven't really read uh you know lots and lots and lots of military SF I, I did read a lot of uh when I was a uh, teenager I read a lot of the, the Star Trek pocket books yeah which I guess in theory kind of qualifies military SF you know cuz uh, hey, it's it's Starfleet, and it, regardless of what people say, Starfleet is a military, and so right. a lot of those books could technically qualify. I, you know, uh, Diane Carey and and Vonda McIntyre. You know, there's there's a number of authors that wrote the, those pocket books, Star Trek books. And now, you know, I, some of those I thought were excellent science fiction. I know some people kind of thumb their nose at Star Trek, but I've never been like that. I've always been a big Trekkie, so I liked those a lot. Um, yeah, I've read. A lot yeah, of Ender's those. Game. Yeah, so yeah, I did too, and I I liked them. Um, and I was mad when I found out that uh, Paramount basically disavows their uh, their their place in the canon of Star Trek. Well, now it's, it's kind of a big mess now with the reboot that J.J. Uh, Abrams <laughs> did. But but uh, anyway, uh, yeah, uh, Ender's Game, like I said, ca- casts a big shadow and really asks uh, uh, a lot of deep fundamental questions about the basis of conflict and and. Uh, you know what price is paid by the victor you know i i think when i was a teenager and i read ender's game that was the thing that stuck out for me was that the victor didn't just walk away clean from this thing you know the the, the victor walked away feeling uh perhaps remorse or guilt or even uh, a, a tremendous amount of uh of uh regret over over what he had done yeah. and uh, you know i think uh, if you if you look in in uh, recent history or at least if you read the anecdotes of uh you know, people who have uh, you know fought in World War One, World War Two, uh, and and other you know other more recent conflicts. Sometimes you'll see this theme cropping up again and again. You know, whoever quotes wins, goes back home. But there's a lot of themselves that they leave back in in the battlefield, and uh, it's a real struggle for them to try to just go on with their lives because they've seen too much and they've experienced things and they've maybe done things mm-hmm. that you know. Yes, in the service of their country or even of their people, but it's it's left a lot of scars on their soul, so to speak. And you know that's always a a, a good meaty uh, hmm. uh, uh, place of pondering for fiction and, and trying to render three dimensional military characters. I wanted to ask you about the specific use of language that you used in the book. Uh, it's definitely an adult book. There there's cursing in the book, but what I Obviously, what's obvious is you had about 150 chances to put the F word in there, but you didn't. You, <laughs> you used an abbreviation for it instead. And I was wondering why you made that choice. Um, uh, part of it was I, I wanted to make it at least kind of cl- close to PG-13. I, I didn't want to make it so far off the beaten path that, that teenagers would be like, whoa, or parents would be like, whoa. Um, but I also, you know, I... I was thinking a little bit about the the Battlestar Galactica. You know, they they came up with some very clever uh, epithets and and uh, curse words for that show. And I thought about the internet. You know, on the internet, you know, the F word uh, has this funny contraction that's appeared in the last ten years. And I thought, well, I'm just going to steal that and carry it forward as if that becomes the word in popular culture. <laughs> uh, because, you know, there's so many words that have infiltrated our, our language now, selfies and LOL and all these things. And I thought, you know what, if you if you draw that out over a few more decades, maybe that will become the word. And, and, and the actual F-bomb will be kind of this archaic, kind of retired uh, prior version of that same... Uh, curse word. And so that's, that's why I chose that. I thought I could, 
you know, maybe maybe uh, just do a little bit of hypothesizing about the, the evolution of language and mm. and save my book from being completely uh, completely a blue streak, especially during the military training scenes. <laughs> All right, that's where most of them are. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, my my least favorite of those, not in the book, but in the, this concept you're discussing, is hashtag. When people say hashtag something as they're speaking to you in person. Right. I think that's hashtag ridiculous. But um, Yeah, <laughs> I tend to agree with you completely. <laughs> but good, that's, a, that's a perfect point. That is, that, is, that is exactly what I thought, too. You know, there's this, this Internet, uh, they call it leet speak, uh, and leet speak has, has really uh, affected our slang over the last 15 years in ways that I don't think even, uh, even I expected it to. And I'm... I'm kind of a, 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 a bulletin board geek going all the way back to 1990 when I was doing the dial-up bulletin boards, and, and that's when this leet speak was kind of first appearing, mm-hmm. and now it's, now it's everywhere. And like I said, uh, it, it's in the era of social media, you know, how is social media changing our language? I think right. it's, it's, it's changed it already, and it will continue to change it. Very interesting. Uh, last question I had for you, and this is unrelated to the book, but I uh, am in love with Writers of the Future trying to win it. I was wondering if you could tell us about your Writers of the Future experience and what it meant to your career. Oh, yeah, gosh. Um, Writers of the Future was a, a total game changer. Um, the, the reason I got into it was uh, back in the 90s when I was really, really brand new and green and, and hopeful and, man, I want to be a writer. Um, Dean Wesley Smith was editing a series for pocketbooks called Strange New Worlds, and it was basically... Um, anthologies that would come out once a year and Star Trek fans of which I was a huge fan could send in basically Star Trek stories I remember that, and get yeah. them published yeah so that was before Writers of the Future I was I was trying to, to get in on this Strange New Worlds thing and I think I sent them half a dozen stories over probably an equivalent number of years and uh, a, a few of them got me uh, nice notes from Dean where he said it came close almost, but not quite. And uh, yeah, I kind of clung to those as, oh man, you know, at least I'm getting some kind of good feedback from somebody. Cause I was just getting buried in rejections at that point. This mm-hmm. is like 96, 97. Um, and I was getting very, very discouraged. And so uh, I went through a, a doldrums between about 99 and, and 2003 um, life got busy. I was in the military. I had a new baby. Uh, you know, things were just going 110 miles an hour, and I wasn't writing very much. Um, but I did have those those notes from Dean, and so I I contacted him through the internet and and kind of got to chattering with him back and forth. And when the series, the Strange New Worlds series, um, was ended, I, I just kind of said to Dean, "Well, shoot, I always wanted to be published, and I'm bummed I didn't get to publish in your books." I wish there was, you know, something else like this. And he said, well, duh, why don't you go enter Writers of the Future? And I was like, yeah, isn't that that Hubbard thing? I don't and he said, no, you know what, just enter Writers of the Future. You'll love it. It's a, it's a great program. Uh, you're going to have a blast. Uh, you know, if you want something, you know, that's, that's going to become your new goal, that, that should be it. And so I read the, you know, I went to the website and I read the entry requirements and all this stuff. And I said, okay, well, that, you know, all right, I'll do this. And so I think I, uh, I think I sent my first stuff to Writers of the Future in 2008. Um, is it 2007 or 2008? I can't remember exactly. Maybe it was 2007. Um, and these were stories I'd already written. They'd been around the block a little bit and hadn't gotten published elsewhere, but I still thought they were good stories. And so I sent these in, and, and each one of them came back with an honorable mention. Now, 
the way Writers of the Future works is, uh, for those who don't know, we're out in podcast land. Uh, Writers of the Future is uh, is open to new writers only, meaning you're not competing with experienced pros. It's basically you and other uh, aspiring writers all uh, uh, trying to get uh, the the 12 spots. There's 12 winners um, every year for every volume, and uh, they they rank it according to you know how well you did in the final judging. Um, right now, Dave Wolverton is the is the coordinating judge, and his job is basically to take the whole pile of stories entered every quarter, and he'll parse them out, and he'll kind of allot them slots. Uh, and usually, he's looking for the top 10%. And in the top 10%, there's the very top, which is the finalists, out of which you know maybe out, let's say you get like two or three or even 4,000 entries per quarter. Out of that, you're going to get probably eight finalists. And then you're probably going to get maybe 12 to 20 semifinalists. And then below that, you've generally got several dozen uh, honorable mentions. And so I was getting honorable mention every time on stories I already written. And I thought, well, gosh, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. What if I really sat down and, and really tried hard to try to hit this thing in, in the bullseye? And so I uh, uh, was reading the, the books at that point. I picked up two or three recent volumes, which I – to me, I think that's the best homework in the world if you're trying to win the contest is to yeah. is to read the most recent volumes and you won't like every story in every book, um, but there usually will be two or three that'll kind of hit you emotionally. And I my advice for people is if they if they can read the book and, and identify those two or three stories that really hit them emotionally, uh, try to use those as like unconscious uh, 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 guide lines or I don't know what the word would be but the best way I can put it is is I let those stories rattle around in my brain pan when I'm sitting down to write the next story or my next entry so to speak hmm. um, another story that really kind of knocked me off my block which was not a writer of the future winner but it was a Hugo and Nebula nominee was a, a story called Arcfall by Carolyn Ives Gelman uh, that I'd read in uh, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction and I thought it was a beautifully done uh, novella uh, uh, total uh, future science fiction, alien world, uh, very strange, wonderful technology. It had a tremendously, what I thought was powerful, emotional underpinning, very good characterization. I mean, it was really a, a bang-up good novella. So I let these things just kind of seep into my, seep into the sponge cake of my creative uh, uh, operations while I'm writing the next story. And uh, the very next thing I wrote uh, coming out of that, and this is after like three or four honorable mentions, was a story called um, Outbound. And it went off to the contest, and it got me my first finalist. Um, but it didn't win, and I was crushed. Uh, I remember oh. how excited I was when I found out it was a finalist, and it didn't win. And that just crushed me to death. I went home and just sat at my kitchen table. My wife's like, oh, man, what's going on? And I just, you know, I just kind of, you know, <laughs> sobbed and moaned about how, you know, I'm never going to be a writer. I can't, you know, the best thing I'd ever written ever, in my opinion, at that point was Outbound. I, I just felt it in my bones. This is the best thing I've ever written and it didn't make it. Oh, my gosh. How am I ever going to get published when the best thing I've ever written doesn't even make the cut? And she just said, you know, OK, feel sorry for yourself for a few days and then get back on the horse. You know, you can't quit. So I Wise woman. basically did. Exactly. Yeah, I know. I, you know, she had put her finger in my chest in 2005 and said, hey, I, I know you're not really writing that much anymore. And I can tell you're kind of depressed and you're kind of, you know, punked out about things and you're, you're in your 30s and you're getting older. You know, is this dream really going to happen or are you just kind of letting it go? And I said, well, no, I don't want to let it go. And so she said, well, what can we do different? And so she really 
over the years has, has pushed me to, to not to not uh, to not give up. And this was another instance, you know, she said, don't give up. Just go back, you know, lick your wounds for a few days and then go back to it. And so I did. And the very next thing I wrote after that um, was a story. Uh, and I apologize to the world for inflicting a, a Greek title on them. <laughs> uh, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's called Exonastasis. And it's, uh, it, the, the Greek word is, is, for the, is for resurrection. And that's why I went and grabbed the title, because the characters in it are Greek. And, uh, and it, it, similar story to Outbound, but from a completely different perspective. Not connected to Outbound at all. That's, I've had people ask me, are they, are, they the, are they a sequel of one or the other? And I said, no. You know, they're similar ideas, but different perspective, different stories, completely different universes. And that one did win, um, about which I was thrilled and excited and ecstatic. Um, I remember it's, it's been about five years exactly this month that I got the phone call from Joni Labakli, who's the, the admin at Writer of the Future. And uh, I had a, a major freak out. Um, very, very happy, obviously. Finally, after you know 17 years and uh, almost a million words unpublished, I'm finally going to you know get to have my shot. Um, and, but the best thing about that is uh, not even necessarily winning, but 60 days later, uh, you know, I'm still kind of coming down off the high of having one writer of the future, and I get a, a a letter in the mail from Stan Schmidt, who was then the editor at Analog, and I'd sent him outbound and just said, hey, Stan, you know, this actually came close to winning it, writer of the future. Dave Wolverton actually liked it. You know, maybe you will too. Uh, and, and Stan writes me back and says, yes, I agree with Dave. I like this a lot. In fact, I'm going to buy it. <laughs> so I proceed to have another freak out. Oh my gosh. You know, I'd been rejected from analog dozens of times and, and despaired of ever actually getting to be in that August publication, you know, cause it's, it's been around forever and yeah. so many big names have been published in it. So outbound was bought, published in uh, the November 2010 issue. Uh, which I was very, very proud of cause I got to go to writers of the future, the, the, the week, uh, back then it was still being held later in the summer. So in, in, uh, <coughs> I think it was late August, uh, it was August or September. I can't remember. I went down to LA and did my week there, but while I was there, I got to kind of hold up my issue of analog and say, see, you know, yeah. uh, it wasn't a fluke. And, uh, the, the icing on the cake after that was the, the following spring, I got another email from Stan where he said, Hey, guess what? You know, th- this is very rare, but uh, Outbound has won for Best Novelette the, the Reader's Choice Award for, for its year. Mm-hmm. And he says that just doesn't happen very much, but you know, I, I'm not surprised at all because he, he liked the story a lot and felt like it was a, a, a very solid, uh, probably better than, better than average uh, break-in for a new writer, and the, and the readers agreed. And I've since won another Reader's Choice Award story for, again, The Chaplain's Legacy. Um, so it went from being... Basically, in 2009 and before, rejections, 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 not feeling like anything was going to happen. And then I went right into the future, and it was like, boom, hmm. I'm selling stories, and suddenly I'm getting Reader's Choice Awards, and, and I've got you know people like Tony Weisskopf at Bain Facebooking me and saying, hey, why don't you consider Bain when you have a novel ready and stuff like this. And hmm. it, it's really still, to me, uh, amazing the difference. Um, I've had some people say, well, yeah, it probably would have happened anyway, whether you won Writers of the Future or not. But I, I still point back to Writers of the Future as being, you know, for me, a seminal thing because not only did I win, not only did I start doing really, really well after I won, but I, I got to meet some really amazing people there. Uh, I think for the people entering the contest, really the, 
the most important thing you get to to do when you go to the contest week, other than just kind of have a blast, is um, you get to spend time with the judges. You know, all the judges are are venerable uh, veteran people in the industry. Some of them are award winning, some of them are bestsellers, and they all have wonderful advice and different opinions about all kinds of things. And and uh, you know, if you're lucky enough to hit it off with a few of them, they become intertwined in your career going forward. Uh, I know Mike Resnick, uh, Kevin G. Anderson. Eric Flint, to a certain extent, um, you know, all these people um, have become kind of bound up in the, the genesis of my career. Uh, you know, Mike was somebody who who put the good word in with uh, Tony Weisskopf at Bain very early on. He said, "Hey, I think this this Torgerson guy, uh, you know, he's he's you know, you should pay attention to him." And you know, those are little things that you can't you can't anticipate and you can't uh, you can't buy that kind of. Uh, <laughs> Of, of good word of mouth, it just kind of has to happen. Um, right. Uh, but you know, again, it all came out of uh, Writers of the Future because Mike wouldn't know who I am without it. Kevin certainly wouldn't have had any idea who I am without Writers of the Future. So I think uh, you know those are the dividends that pay way long beyond just getting the contest money. Uh, and I think it's definitely worth it. I'm always they, they invite me back usually as a as a returning winner to kind of shepherd the new winners every year, and I'm always very pleased to do that because I I want to you know, go down there and kind of pep talk everybody and say, okay, you've won. Now the real work starts and you really have a career and you got to go, go, go. And I, you know, I go down there and do the the cheerleader thing. So I I have a good time with that. Well, it's a very inspiring story. Thank you. I'm glad I asked that question. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, Um, you're welcome. And good luck. Thank (laughs) you. And good luck to everybody. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's a great contest. Well, folks, the book is The Chaplain's War. You can find it right now at your local bookstore. If you're going to buy it online, then come to adventuresinsci-fipublishing.com. We have the book image there. Just click on that. It'll take you to Amazon. And bradtorgeson.wordpress.com. Links for everything in the show notes. And you can give him a follow on Facebook. I do. And it's a good follow. So, uh, Brad, thanks for coming on the show. Congratulations on your first book, and I look forward to having you on again in the future. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to talk. Hi, folks. Uh, This is John Dodds, and this is my first ever audio review for Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, although I have written a number of uh, text reviews for the website. Before I start, I'd like to say up front that I'm already a fan of Jonathan Carroll, and when I read his first book, The Land of Laughs, I became an instant fan. I haven't read everything he's written, to be fair, but uh, when I heard that he had a new one out and I had the opportunity to review it, it was, as you Americans say, a no-brainer. So here's the review, and you'll be able to read a copy of it on the website also. Okay, Bathing the Lion, a novel by Jonathan Carroll. Jonathan Carroll's latest novel, Bathing the Lion, opens with a relationship breakup. The breakup is described so vividly that the pain and tension is tangible and convincingly real, but which, along with the ultra-realistic scenes that follow, do not prepare the reader for what comes next. Picture a domestic-scale apocalypse, with your world splitting beneath your feet in a way that feels both matter-of-fact and utterly bizarre at the same time. So what's the book about? Well, it's about lots of things. The story centres around five people who live in the same New England town. Some of them know each other, some don't. They go to sleep one night and all share the same hyper-realistic dream. When they wake the next day, all of them know what has happened. All five of them were at one time mechanics. 
Mechanics are a type of cosmic repairman whose job is to keep order in the universe and clean up the messes made both by sentient beings and the terrifying chaos that periodically rolls through, wreaking mayhem wherever it touches down. Because the job of a mechanic is gruelling and exhausting, after a certain period all of them are retired and sent to different parts of the cosmos to live out their days as civilians. Their memories are wiped clean and new identities are created for them that fit the places they go to live out their natural lives to the end. For the first time, all retired mechanics are being brought back to duty. Chaos has a new plan and it's not looking good for mankind. To describe this novel as some have done as surrealistic is to do it a disservice. By that I mean the word surreal suggests weirdness, obscurity, experimentalism, whereas Carol's work is no such thing. The book is strange to be fair, but the fantastical elements feel as real as today's news. And it's written in crystalline prose, which induces in the reader a dreamlike state, but with clear, uncompromising imagery and layers of meaning, if you choose to look for them. Normally, I find changing points of view within a single chapter an irritating, slightly lazy device. But in this case, it's completely justified. When you're talking about a shared dream or alternate reality, it is necessary to see through the eyes of all the participants. For instance, are they all seeing the same sentient couch? And the map on the hide of the red elephant Mumba, none of these people can interpret it individually, but perhaps collectively they can understand what it means. Questioning the very nature of reality as it does, as well as exploring what it means to be human, places bathing the line firmly in the camp that some might describe as literature, with a capital L. And make no mistake, bathing the line is unquestionably a work of fine literature, and I don't mean the reductive publishing category. It's literature that deals with the human heart and spirit without being in the least pretentious or archly poetic. At the core of Bathing the Lion is a kind of metaphysical adventure story which is every bit as gripping as a great space opera in far-flung galaxies. At times it's also as disturbing as a horror story, and there is a leavening of humour too which makes the unsettling aspects even more unsettling. But don't look for an easily graspable storyline or think you're going to be let off the hook at the end. What you'll be left with, though, is a sense of exhilaration, a sense of having seen wonders and plenty to think about and discuss afterwards. With the year not finally out, I'd go as far as to say that this is the best novel I've read in 2014. It will certainly remain in my mind for a very long time. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>